Before Jeff Bezos was the richest man in the world, he worked for somebody who was one of the richest men in the world, somebody who used to be a professor at Columbia University. What exactly did D.E. Shaw do that made him a master of the universe? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. D.E. Shaw was one of the pioneers of program trading, of high-speed trading on Wall Street. High-speed trading is so focused on speed that an entire industry grew up around it based on the speed of light. It's called co-location. If you've got a computer program that can trade stocks faster and a little bit better than other people can, where you're making a tenth of a penny or a hundredth of a penny or a thousandth of a penny on every trade, then getting your computer program closer to the stock market itself, not giving up a hundred feet or ten feet or even a foot of 10-base-T wire Ethernet between you and the trading floor matters. Because if you can get in a picosecond before your competition, you can grab that tiny little bit of equity faster than they can. And so the co-location industry is all about renting space in a building as close as possible to the central trading computer and keeping the wires as short as possible. Here's an industry that's based on the picosecond that didn't even exist 40 years ago. Why does it matter? It matters because people who play with money for a living are doing a simple bit of math. And the math is, what's the return on investment? Well, there are two ways to make the return on investment go up. One way is that you can get more money back from the money you invest. But the other way, the other half of the fraction, is you can keep the money for less time. That if it takes you a year to get a 10% return versus a 5% return in a month, you're going to do way better if you can get what seems like half the return in one twelfth the time. Because the stock market trading, investing, capitalism has always been in a hurry. How fast can we get our money back? Sure, we want things to grow, but the capitalist says, if I have a choice between being a month trader and a day trader and everything else is the same, I'll trade every day. And then, of course, the day trader is undermined by the hour trader, who's undermined by the minute trader and the second trader, and now you get the idea. The people who are doing this program trading, who make $400 million, $600 million in a year, that means they're making more than a million dollars in a day, do the math, that's a very expensive podcast you just listened to, isn't it? These people don't spend 
any time whatsoever thinking about the repercussions of the trades that they are making. They aren't even aware of the companies in which they're making them. They don't look deeply into the fundamentals. What they're focusing on are little tiny glitches doing arbitrage between what something should be worth and what it is currently trading at. These little micro-trades filling in the gaps make the market, in their words, more efficient. The question is, more efficient at what? That doing it faster, without any guidance, without any oversight, simply running a program causes us to make up stories about what is actually happening. Consider these two lines from a Bitcoin analyst. Bitcoin price struggles to break above $12,000. After several fakeouts, the Bitcoin price is hovering below the psychologically important $12,000 mark as the bulls are struggling to make a decisive move. Well, actually, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is a bunch of day traders and computers are looking at what happened a second ago and are going to decide what's going to happen a second from now with many, many completely unrelated decisions made at as close to the speed of light as possible. Let's call this impatient capital. Someone who is investing impatient capital wants to know just one thing. How fast is this going to go up in value? That their goal is to buy low and sell high and then do it again tomorrow. But there is an alternative. And the alternative, as coined by Jacqueline Novogratz, is patient capital. And patient capital says, wait a minute. When Henry Ford figured out how to make the Model T so cheap, he unleashed a 90-year cycle that ended up paving the earth and creating a big part of our climate change problem. Now, if that had been his goal and he had been patient, he would have succeeded. That it turns out when you show up in a community and turn on the lights, people do things with the light. It turns out that when we are able to make investments in a system, the system acts differently. And if we are patient, still using the mechanism of capitalism at our side, it is possible to change the world. That the folks at McDonald's have changed the way a billion people eat, which has changed the way countless farmers do their job, which has changed the way families interact with one another. Now, you might not be building that system on purpose, but it was capitalism that built that system. And the people who invested in it early, maybe they sold their shares after they doubled or tripled or quadrupled in price. But the system continues to ratchet. So the question we need to ask as we look at the systems around us, are we responsible for what happens to the system we invest in? And if we are willing to be patient in how we are going to engage with that system, what change 
could we possibly make? Consider the case of Western Seed. Western Seed is a company in Kenya. It turns out that if you use kernels left over from last year's corn harvest, your yield will not be nearly as good as if you buy fresh seeds designed for this year's planting. I'm not talking about GMO. I'm talking about doing it the old-fashioned way. Hand-hybridized seeds that are quite fertile, that will grow in your plot far better than if you used farm-saved seeds from last year. The good news about farm-saved seeds is that they are free. The bad news is they don't work very well because the things that are left over after you grow wheat aren't necessarily the best seeds to grow wheat. That a natural hybrid bred the way that seeds have been bred for millennia that is designed for this year will dramatically outperform farm-saved seed. A $30 bag of seed will produce a $3,000 difference in the yield of your farm in just four months. So the question is, if we go to somebody and say, want to buy $3,000 worth of wheat for $30 in seed? You would expect that most rational actors would say yes. Except we're working in a low-trust environment. We're working with technology because it's new. We're working with a matter of life and death. If you screw up, your family's not going to eat. If these are just magic beans and they're not going to grow right, you've made a huge error. So it doesn't take one year to persuade most of the farmers to adopt Western seed. It might take five years or 10 years. The day trader doesn't know what to do with that. So the day trader goes and buys some Bitcoin. So the day trader goes and buys a coal mine. But here, patient capital can start to change things. Because over time, the norm in this community will change. The norm will go from people like us use farm-saved seed to people like us use Western seed. And once they've made that commitment, Western seed is going to have a competitor. And that competitor may make an even higher-yielding seed. And once higher-yielding seeds are embraced, the people in the community will be able to go to private school. The people in the community will be able to buy books. The people in the community will find other things to do to create productivity. And 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now, this little bag of seeds is going to transform the way the community lives and acts. It's still capitalism, but it's patient capital. It is keeping track on a different time frame. And it's difficult for it to coexist with the time frame of how many basis points can I get regardless of the short-term cost to me and the people around me. Consider the case of D-Light. A D-Light solar lantern sits outdoors all day long, and then at night it glows for three or four or five hours, which means you can do your schoolwork, which means you can charge your phone. That if you live in a village off the grid with no electricity, instead of the entire world going pitch black at 6 p.m., you can get work done. It means that instead of spending 10, 20, 30 cents a day on kerosene, a dangerous way to light up the inside of your home, 
you can buy a solar lantern, which will pay for itself in 90 days. And once you have a solar lantern and your productivity increases because now you can work at night, you have enough money to buy a bigger solar lantern, one that can charge several devices, one that can bring other elements of powered devices into your life. And so the patient capital ratchet continues to turn because the culture in your community begins to change. Instead of everything extinguishing at 6 p.m., instead of people dying from lung disease or fire, the quality of life goes up. Now, the people who are selling D-Light solar lanterns are not giving them away. They are making a profit. They are not making a profit that would make a day trader happy, but they are making a profit nonetheless. And over time, this patience begins to pay off. And what we end up with is productive groups of millions or even billions of people who, over the course of a decade or two, produce far more value than the venture capitalist who invested in a juicing machine that was supposed to double in price in a week. The late, great Zig Ziglar built his career on one profound sentence. You can get everything you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Now, the robber barons and the masters of the universe have shortened this to, you can get anything you want. That without regard for how it will impact other people, folks who have plenty are tempted to say, I can have anything I want. And to pay for that, they focus on day trading. To pay for that, they focus on basis points, on what kind of return can I get from this interaction, from this email, from this investment. But what happens if we just take the second half of the sentence? What happens if we approach the problem of culture like this? If you just help enough other people get what they want, period. What would happen to our culture if our bias was, if you just help enough other people get what they want? Because it's actually not a zero-sum game. It's only zero-sum if we're impatient. It's only zero-sum if we're buying and trading by the picosecond, because for every winner, there has to be a loser. That's how the market works. But if we bring patience to the equation, the rules are fundamentally different. It turns out that if I hold the door open, I can help the person behind me. And it turns out that if I create a culture where other people are holding the door open, where technology shows up not to belittle or enslave other people, but shows up simply to create more abundance and less scarcity, we play a different game. So thanks to Zig for getting us started. But in fact, you can help enough other people get what they want. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a mind-blowing question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. 
Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I love to hear from you. If you've got a question, I hope you won't hesitate. We need more of your questions. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. We got this question last week. I think it will make you think. Hi, Seth. This is Oliver from Austria. I love the show on artificial intelligence. I just have one question. What do you think consciousness actually is? Where does it come from and why do we have it? And by consciousness, I mean the experience that it is like something to be me. So, for example, I feel like I am speaking into the microphone right now, as opposed to an algorithm which is just going through instructions and not aware of itself. Thank you. Love the show. Let's start with this. If there was someone on Earth, a friend of yours, a colleague, perhaps your spouse, who didn't have that noise in their head, who didn't have the ongoing narrative all the time, if, in fact, there is not always Sonder, the realization that other people have a noise in their head the way you have a noise in your head. What if there was someone who didn't? How could you tell? How could you tell the difference between someone who was a living, breathing, functioning human being who had all the internal doubts and repercussions and do-overs and someone who just acted like they did? And of course, you couldn't tell the difference. It's sort of a Turing test, but with real people. That there is no external evidence that someone has that buzzing going on. And it may be, as leaders in the area of philosophy of mind are now arguing, it may be this noise in our head is just a historical artifact. That dogs don't have it, that snails don't have it, that pigeons don't have it, and that maybe People have it differently from one another because we can't tell. And if we can't tell, then does it even matter? Here's the example I've given before that really resonated with me. Let's think about a football game. Let's think about the idea that there's instant replay and there's play-by-play and there's the color commentator. Now let's imagine that a play has just unfolded before our eyes. What happens is the quarterback drops back to pass He fakes a handoff. He throws a long bomb. It's going, it's going. It's a touchdown. Now, you just heard what the play-by-play announcer was saying. Second and 13. Pick it under pressure. Puts it up deep. And oh, look where my Brandon Lloyd! An incredible catch! A one-handed leaping catch by Brandon Lloyd! This is one of the best catches you'll ever see. Ever. You heard it after you saw the play on the field. Of course you did, because the announcer also saw the play as you saw the play. And after the fact, the announcer made up all of this story about what you just saw. For a moment, 
Imagine what it would be like if it was in the reverse order. Imagine what it would be like if when you were watching a football game, the announcer, sped up by 10 seconds on the track, said what was about to happen, and moments later, it did happen. How weird would that be? Well, we have come to be comfortable with the idea that we say stuff in our narrative brain, in our conscious brain, and then we do it. But it's probably true that the opposite is the case. That at a base chemical level, much quicker than we come up with the narrative, we've already decided to do something. We're already doing something. And then, only then, only after that fact, do we come up with the narrative. That it's possible using functional MRI scanning and some thoughtful mind experiments to prove that this happens all the time. That really what we've got in our head is a play-by-play announcer. It's possible that this evolved over time, that human beings talked to themselves, and that that was the version we had first of what we now call consciousness. But then our brains evolved to the point where we could talk to ourselves without talking out loud. That language leads to this notion that we have a little man or a little woman in our head who's telling us what to do, but we don't. So that's my take on the philosophy of mind. I could go on about it all day long, but it's sort of mind-blowing because A, Sonder is really cool, that moment that you realize other people also have fears and dreams, and then B, realizing that maybe not everyone does and that it is entirely possible that everyone but you is acting like they do. I think that's unrealistic, but we know that there are people in the world who do not report having the same sort of neurotic narration going on in our head that many of us do. I hope that resonates. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions. We'll see you next time. Get better clients. There, in three words, is the strategy of any freelancer who wants to do better work. Get better clients. You can't work more hours, but you can work for people who appreciate the work you want to do. They will push you harder. You will do better work. They will talk about you. You will get paid more. You will be more proud of what you produce. How to get better clients. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and we have built a workshop just for you. If you work for yourself I really think you need to check it out. It's at www.thefreelancersworkshop.com. It's not a bunch of videos. It's a workshop. You will work with other freelancers, working your way forward to figure out how to do this work that matters. I hope you'll take a minute to check it out. Thefreelancersworkshop.com. Sign-ups begin in the middle of October. We would love to have you join us. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where 
you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.